Hello and welcome to the 182nd episode of From Alpha to Omega. Today is Monday the 20th of June 2020 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week is part two of our discussion with Nicholas C. Scott about the role the self-organised Cordones played in the Chilean Revolution. Nicholas recently had an article about the Cordones published in the Washington Post of all places. I've included a link to the article in the show notes, so make sure to check it out. Part 3 of this discussion is a Patreon-only episode, so if you like listening to all those extra Patreon-only episodes, head on over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar. Speaking of Patreon, this week I have the new patrons EO and Aritra to thank. Also, if you'd like to donate to the Socialist Planning Book project Donald and myself are busy working on, please make your way over to the website at theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com where you can find out all about it. Okay, to the interview. In in the revolution, like that's something that comes up in your thesis, like allegations repeatedly. How, how big a factor was this essentially like a capital strike? It was. I mean, it will become a huge factor late in 72 in October when the so-called bosses strike erupts. But prior to that point, you see sort of a series of uncoordinated attempts by management and business elites to sabotage INDA's agenda by not running machines at full capacity, by not investing in the machines. One of the key things that the opposition will do by way of owners of factories, as soon as INDA is elected in 1970, is that reinvestment will virtually drop off a cliff, meaning that any sort of profits will not be invested into the maintenance of machinery and things of that nature. And so that you can see then if you know a certain machine, say in a textile mill, had been in place for years and had already sort of begun to deteriorate, if it didn't have then the investment necessary to maintain that machine, the factory's output would fall off. The factory's output falling off means that the sort of tangible benefits that the Allende government is promising, in this case, bedsheets, are less available, right? Also, then you can see how this would contribute to inflation, precisely, right? right? And so you can see how at this moment, there's sort of sporadic elements of this, but it really doesn't become consolidated and coordinated until October of 1972 on parts of the opposition. So what happened with this uh, Mirabaltra? Yeah, so returning to, to the Perlac factory in 1972, Essentially, Santos Romeo, the president of the Industrial Union and Baltra, engaged in a heated argument in which she accuses him of having an anti-quote, anti-communist attitude. He responds in turn, we don't actually have a good quote extant in the, in the archive as to what his retort is, but we know that it was something incendiary because Baltra's response was to slap him across the face for insolence and this sort of perceived anti-communist attitude. Now, it's really hard to say if this slap really is the sort of moment that sets everything in motion, but by way of the archive and the way that the both workers of the Cordon and the press will respond to it, it is a quilting point, we could say, or at least a consolidation of sort of all the tensions that are simmering below the surface of, of Chilean society, specifically the, the working class of Chile at the time. And ultimately following the slap, the coot member will acquiesce to the workers' demand and will not go. Baltra and other members of the labor ministry will go into the factory. They will carry out their study and they will find 
their findings will support the workers' claims of industrial sabotage. However, the workers will use that slap from Baltra as the sort of call to action on behalf of all of the workers in the industrial belt. And then they will hold a general assembly in which a sort of workers' command is established. And that workers' command will begin to coordinate actions of the different factories within the belt itself. Now, Perlac will successfully win government intervention, and it will then be added to the list of factories that would be incorporated into that social property area. The other factory that was on strike, the aluminum factory, will not win the intervention. And so from the perspective of the workers of the industrial belt, it had not been a success. And so what they will do in the following days is lead a march into the center of Santiago. And it is at this moment that we begin to see the language of a cordon industrial emerge in reference to the actions of the workers and the new organizational structure that they are developing. This organizational structure, this workers' command, will issue a platform of struggle in July of 1972, which is reprinted amongst the leftist press of the time, specifically Chile Oi, which was a leftist press, but it was an Indista leftist press, meaning that it was a non-partisan press that aligned with the Allendist view you know, of, of that constitutional path forward. It did not adhere to a socialist or communist ideology. And so it is important that that is sort of the press where this is appearing. Now, following this moment, there is a sort of demobilization of the workers of the Cordon, specifically because the government has a vested interest in acquiescing to their demands, right? They they essentially, following this march into the city, will seize the territory of the industrial belt. They will all erect barricades, and which will paralyze transportation in and out of the city. And in a moment in which you're worried about inflationary pressures and supply not meeting the locations that it needs to, that's a, that's a big move, right? That's a gamble that the workers engage in, and it does pay off. And so following that, then the government has a concerted effort to demobilize these sectors. And so at that point, the, the first cordon, as we could refer to it as the cordon Serios Maipu, somewhat disappears from the archive. And this is a sort of important moment to perhaps remind our listeners that in the archive, these cordones as organizations are very effervescent. Right? We only really see them at these moments of crisis or conflict. It's very hard for scholars and historians to get a, a glimpse into what the sort of day-to-day actions were of these organizations, which is in part what informed my current research into focusing them more on in their spatial elements, which would extend our temporalization all the way back to 1957 and all the way forward to 2010 and sort of trying to understand the relationship between that sector of the city, the industrial belt itself, and the actions that take place in 1972 to 1973. So how, like, if we look at the function, say, then of the Cordones, you see that this contradiction between the organizational structures of typical capitalist union structures, you know, on a trade level, you know, it seems to be somewhat exacerbated even in Chile with white-collar and blue-collar unions. That seems to be something that I haven't heard. I, I, I don't know if I've really heard of white collar unions, maybe guilds or something like that, or associations, but not so much unions. Like, mm-hmm. so that seems quite unusual, like for me reading it, but I'm, I'm not a historian of, of, <laughs> of labor or anything like that. I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's a, that's a good. It is one of those, new, it is like one of those nuances of the Chilean labor code for sure. And it, it even exists at another level, the gremios or the gremialistas, 
which would be essentially unions for bosses, right? Yes. Bosses organizations that exist independent of those white collar unions. And so there's even another sort of organizational structure. Right. And we're going to get there, the Gremio strike that's going to occur now in a, in, in a few minutes. It's interesting because some people, like I've heard leftists maintain that the the Gremio strike was like a union strike and and not a not a strike of capital, which is totally wrong. But yes. um, so we see this contradiction between the isolated, siloed workers unions and this this geographical basis, which seems to basically sweep aside that. It's as if the workers themselves have said. On some level, like we want a Wobblies, we want an industrial union like the IWW, geographically based, yeah, as a response fact, to these problems. Yeah, the Wobblies is a great analogy for those listeners that are may not be as familiar with the Chilean example themselves. That it really was this pan-industrial idea that would be pan-industrial, but would also be anchored in the specific geographies of where industries existed. You know, and at that moment in early 1972, when this first is appearing, the, the goal of this structure is once again to get these factories that are medium-sized factories, medium-sized industries, be integrated into the social property area. And it's because from the perspective of workers, in a moment in which the idea is to reach socialism, and that the idea of the social property area is the germ of a socialist economy, they want to be part of that. And also the sort of tangible benefit is that industries that had been integrated into the social property area were allowed to create workers' councils within the factory. And those workers' councils would essentially have to be recognized, were legally recognized by management, meaning that workers, rank and file factory floor workers, would have a say in the day-to-day operations of the management of a factory and the sort of business administration of a given factory, which at the time when participation is a key watchword that's going down, that was seen as the way that you participated. Right. So we've just kind of gone through the history of this first section where the Cardones essentially were on the attack, where they were like getting off the ground and they were getting what they wanted. They got the businesses that they wanted to be kind of socialized or nationalized. Well, we should say nationalized because they're not really socialized. You know, It's not really elements. socialized and it's not even so much nationalized as there's not a really good word in English. And in Spanish it would be estatización, the statization, but yeah. basically a state management. Right. Um, yeah. And and so so we've we've got that and now we're into this this second part where they are basically on the defensive. Do you want to tell us what how this occurred? Yeah, this is great. And so really, you know, I guess I should back up just for a moment and that you know, when we're talking about first part, second part, a lot of this is drawn from my research which sort of grew out of a concern when I surveyed the sort of literature base of the Cordones. A key trend that I noticed was that a lot of the scholars using written source material or extant archival material would use material from say this moment that we're about to talk about in October of 72 or even more so in 1973 to describe that early moment to describe what a cordon was and that sort of raised my red flag as a historian right you know history matters and change over time matters and thus it seemed less precise to use a source from later in the revolution when circumstances had greatly changed to describe an organization 
that emerges at a much different moment in, in the revolutionary timeframe. And so the sort of impetus behind this uh, master thesis that we're talking about today was to sort of unpack how the cordones had changed over both time and space of the revolution. So over the space of the city of Santiago and over the time of the revolution. And so by October of 1972, my concern sort of switches from that Western cordon to the what we mentioned earlier, the sort of Southeastern industrial belt of Okunamakena. And it's during October 1972 that this emerges as sort of what we could say is one of the most dynamic cordones in existence. In fact, the cordon of Okunamakena is where I center my dissertation research on completely. One, because we just don't have a great study of it in relation to Sirios Maipu. And two is that it's a, it was even more opaque to pierce in terms of what was going on inside this cordon. But if we step back for a moment and sort of set the stage of what's going on. So in October of 1972, Allende proposes nationalizing the country's transportation networks. There is a trucker strike that will emerge in the far southern province of Aysen, in the south of Chile, that is in protest of this proposed nationalization. Within days, the opposition at this point, which has become much more consolidated, will transform this seemingly isolated trucker strike into a nationwide lockout. And it, not just a lockout of, say, industry, but they will convince key sectors of, say, professionals, doctors, lawyers, who are all organized in their own colegios, or we could think of them as sort of professional organizations, akin to a labor organization, but not a union per se. They will convince key sectors of these colegios to go along with that, which means that you have basically the professional sector of the Chilean economy, as well as the transportation sector, as well as key factories and industries locking its doors. So in a moment in which inflation is now running rampant due largely to these other pressures such as black markets and things like that, this is seen as the what will create the recipe to destabilize the Allende government and then force the hand of the military to intervene and to essentially depose Allende. Did, did the white-collar workers, did they strike at all in this strike or were they... <laughs> On the government that's, side. That's a great question. It's actually hard to say because it varies factory to factory. So in the case of Vacuna Makena, the factory that sort of sparks, if Perlac sparked the original cordon, we could say that the Alec Metal factory sparks Vacuna Makena's cordon. And there are reports at the time in the press that key empleados, key technicians absconded with documents from Alec Metal's factory that would have proven the workers' claims of industrial sabotage and slowdowns and things like that, that they essentially stole these documents before the workers could seize the factory and force the government intervention. But then uh, and, you know, if we look just across the territory of Bakuna Makena to, say, the Sumar textile factory, we know we have records there of empleados you know, standing with the obreros and standing with the, the workers in maintaining the production in opposition to the boss's strike. Okay, so what's the response then of the government to this crazy-ass capital strike? Right, so basically what Allende will do uh, is he will sort of deploy the full force of presidential power. He will declare a state of emergency, which allows him a few things. Most notably, it allows him the authority to requisition the trucks that are 
paralyzed due to the truckers' strike and then use those so that transportation can continue, i.e. so that supplies can continue meeting their destinations. It also allows him to deploy the military to the streets as a sort of backup measure to secure the peace. In Chile, there is a police force known as the Carabineros, which are a militarized police force. And militarized in this sense means that they are a member of the Chilean armed forces. They're not just militarized insofar as tactics or supplies. What Allende is allowed to do is deploy forces, armed forces, members of the Chilean military, to support the Carabineros in the streets to maintain public order. Because it is hard to overstate the level of open class warfare that is taking place during the October crisis. For those of your listeners that would be interested in perhaps seeing or experiencing this moment, I would direct them to Patricio Guzman's wonderful magistral documentary, The Battle of Chile, La Batalla de Chile. It's a three-part documentary in which he has just, you know, once in a lifetime footage of basically all of the Allende period, but the, as he calls it, the insurrection of the bourgeoisie forms one of the three parts. And so you really get a good lived in sense of what this was like. And it was violent and it was street conflicts and, you know, it was workers requisitioning buses and trucks and having to fight off far right shock troops, civilian shock troops, trying to, you know, maintain those in a paralyzed state. Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, uh, like, was there use of gangs and stuff like that? Like, cause, like these tactics, like to somebody who like follows what goes on in Venezuela, these tactics all seem to be precisely what happens in Venezuela. Very much so. So there are uh, the the most the, the largest, most organized shock troop organization would be Patria y Libertad, which uh, I translate as Fatherland and Freedom. Others have translated as Fatherland and Liberty. This being due to Libertad being both liberty or freedom. Uh, I'm a sucker for alliteration, so I like um, <laughs> the fatherland and freedom translation, but I also think that it captures more of the allure of fascism, right? This allure of freedom under a fascist government, because this was an openly fascist organization and it was militant and it was highly organized and disciplined. And they had shock troops that would foment unrest by way of picking fights with workers and members of the popular classes in the streets of Santiago. They would also deploy their troops to these industrial belts to sabotage these factories. So much so that one of the works of the Cordones during October is to create commissions of security, security commissions. And insofar as even erecting watchtowers outside of factory gates to monitor and protect their factory from a rightist shock troop coming to uh, disrupt it or to essentially lock it out. So these things then that Allende did, were they sufficient to defeat the strike or what happened? So he Allende does his best. Uh, unfortunately, he's in some sense, always one step behind the opposition's ability to keep the strike going, to keep the capital strike going. And so in late October, there's a meeting, a speech that is convened by Allende and Luis Figueroa who was the then president of the CUT, that National Labor Federation, in which they you know, praise the workers for the efforts that they have done insofar as keeping production running, right? Allende will sort of exclaim that none of the key industries are paralyzed, nitrates, copper, coal, all of these industries are running and they're running for the people of Chile. The speech will then end with Figueroa giving a plan of action, sort of a seven point plan. And key here, is that one of these plans 
calls for the creation of coordinating committees at the level of a cordon industrial. And now this is important for a few reasons. One is the first time that the government officially recognizes the sort of level of the cordon industrial as a level of organization. So within this sort of smaller history of 72 to 73, this is a key turning point. In the sort of larger history and the sort of interest that I have now in my dissertation, I think it's worth noting that the actual language used in this point is to designate uh, industrial cordon, a cordon industrial, as a geographic entity, and that the actual organization that is called for is a coordinating committee. And so already we can see that there is this tension between sort of space and organization, which I think is a very productive tension. And that's sort of what I'm focusing on now. But that's beside the point. What this will do for the workers, specifically the workers of Bakuna Makena and those at the Alec Metal Factory, is it will give them the green light to essentially model what happened earlier that year in Serios Maipu in their own territories. So this is really the moment, as some scholars have referred to it, as the hour of the Cordones in October and November of 1972, when you see these organizations sort of flourishing across Santiago and across Chile. Now, we don't have a lot of good studies of Cordones that exist outside of Santiago, but Marianne Schlotterbeck has recently published a study of a key cordon in the city of Concepcion, which is in the, to the south of Santiago. This is actually the only study we have of a cordon outside the city of Santiago. And so for your listeners that are perhaps interested in you know, what's going on outside the city of Santiago, uh, I would direct them to, to that study. And so for Armando Cruzes, who is the president of the Elec Metal Factory Union and other workers in the territory of Bakuna Makena, they will link two pre-existing networks. If we think of Bakuna Makena as a north-south axis, at the northern end, there was a, a series of unions that began collaborating, anchored largely in the glass factory of Cristalillas, Chile. And at the southern end, there was another network that existed anchored largely in the work of Textile Progresso and the Sumar factory. And what Cruces and Ismail Yoa from Cristalillas will do is join these two networks together to create the workers' command of Vacuna Makena. And this is really the moment that then Cordon Industrial Bakuna Makena emerges both in real time and in the archive. And of particular note here is that the Cordon Bakuna Makena will publish a manifesto entitled The Manifesto of Bakuna Makena. And this document has not been ignored by scholars by any means, right? Frank Gudishud, Sandra Castillo, other scholars, Miguel Silva, who have studied the Cordones, all reference this document as emerging. But it goes little beyond that, by which I mean they will acknowledge the existence of the document. They may even reproduce a copy of the document in an appendix or in the text of their study itself. But they don't actually analyze the document itself. And so what I did when I was at Virginia working on my master's thesis, because I had to do a second master's thesis after having just completed this master's from Tufts, but I had to do so within the first two years of my program at Virginia uh, without the guarantee of being able to return to Chile to conduct more archival research. So I was sort of left with a, what can I do with a limited archival base? And I thought about it and I thought about it. And I thought back to my first time in Chile, I actually met with Frank Godeshud, who was talking to me. And, you know, he said something to me at that moment, and this would have been in 2016, that, you know, we don't have a good study of Acuna Macena. We don't really know what's going on in there. Nevertheless, we know it's an important 
a super important organization that emerges. And we know it's also a super important just industrial belt in the larger history of Chile. And so as I was sitting there in Virginia and I was thinking, well, you know, let's, let's see what we can do. Let's, let's see if we can sort of pierce the opacity that surrounds Bakuna Makena beyond sort of narrating its birth, which I had done in the Tufts thesis. And so I really sat with this document, this manifesto document. And what I discovered is that the document itself is actually a reworked version of another document that had circulated during the October crisis. So during the October crisis, uh, the Grimios, the, the head of the capital strike, published this document called the Pliego de Chile, right? The sort of demand, we could think of that as the demands of Chile. And that lays out their demands for ending their strike. And as you can imagine, it's heavily tilted towards the needs of capital and demanding that the government recognize private property, recognize their ability to express themselves by way of the strike that they're carrying out, things of that nature. Well, the, the MIR, the revolutionary left movement that we've mentioned a few times, takes great issue with the fact that they not only release this document, but use the name of Chile and do so in the name of Chile. And so they release their own document called the Pliego del Pueblo, or the People's Demands, as a rejoinder to this document. Now, the Pliego del Pueblo is a much more extensive document. You know, shocker, the leftists have a much more extensive list of demands than the right at this time. But it also reads as a much more programmatic vision for revolution. In the Mears version, they essentially, version and vision, they wanted these sort of nascent organizations of the Cordones to become essentially a Soviet in miniature, to become a, a workers' council that would ultimately perhaps establish a system of dual government along the Soviet model that would perhaps create that revolutionary breakthrough that they've been pushing for since that polemic starts back in early 1972, right? And, and so... They never, they, they never were this kind of dual. They never had this kind of dual power element. They like, do not. What, what was the, what was the maximum of their kind of? The maximum of their efforts is the ability for a coordinating committee or a workers' command to essentially coordinate actions within a given territory. So, in the case of October 1972, they're able to send workers to other factories that may be in the process of seizing their factory and demanding that government intervention. They will create sort of systems of barter between different factories for key supplies that may be needed in production, repairs, things of that nature. In the case of Akuna Makena, they will innovate uh, what are referred to as the sort of popular markets. And these popular markets, um, you can think of them not dissimilar to a farmer's market in which agricultural producers will sell their goods directly to consumers, thus cutting out any sort of middleman or um, commercial front, right, that would profit off of the labor of an agricultural worker. What these workers will do is that they will then use the products that they are now producing in their seized factories that have been intervened by the state, and they will sell them direct to the consumers of their territory, thus cutting out the risk of them being held on the black market. And this was seen as not only a way to you know, continue that promise of tangible benefits for everyday individuals in the revolution, but also seen as a way that the base could perhaps participate in the sort of war against inflation or inflationary pressures. Yeah, there was other reports of like that they changed the nature of the products that they were actually creating in their in the factories. Yes, yeah, so we have one factory in Vacuna Makena 
the Alusa factory, which was a, a furniture factory. And once the workers of this factory are able to gain that government intervention, right, which means they're able to create that workers' council interior to the factory, which means that they are able to interact with management, they propose reorganizing the way that the factory both produced and what it produced. So we have great quotes from workers of the time that basically say that they no longer wanted to produce sumptuous products that the elites, that only elites could afford and would produce sort of very basic furniture that workers and sort of members of the urban poor could afford that would not have otherwise had access to. So you can see it as a sort of continuation if we're thinking of sort of things like bed sheets and these everyday sort of necessities that many workers spent all day, every day of their lives producing, but were not ever able to own themselves. And so that's another sort of example of what the cordones were able to affect. They were never able to reach a level of governing on a national scale or even governing in terms of their territorial scale. It was much more an organization that allowed for coordination, collaboration, and solidarity. So these cordones were, were key then in breaking the strike. What happened to the Gremio strike? So ultimately, stalemate sort of ensues, right, that the cordones are able to keep the country afloat, keep the supply of basic necessities afloat. The Grimios are unable to sort of reach any sort of advancement on their strike. And there's an agreement that is reached, which others, which scholars such as Peter Wynn have referred to as the Truce of November. And the Truce of November is essentially the Allende government negotiating with the capital strike, the bosses strike, and reaching a series of agreements that would see a cabinet shuffle, right? It would see key ministers of Allende's cabinet leave as well. And this is important for what's going to happen in 1973. This is the moment that Allende agrees to integrate the military into his cabinet. And so he will integrate Carlos Prats, who was the head of the Chilean military following the assassination of Rene Snyder in 1970, as his ministry, interior ministry, which in Chile, there's not a vice president, but the interior minister would essentially be the closest thing to a vice president in the Chilean political system. Uh, and so this is seen as, a, as you know, perhaps restoring some sense of constitutionality to the popular unity government from the eyes of the opposition. And it's enough for them to demobilize their forces. Also, there is a promise, there is debates on whether or not during the October strike, when you had this sort of flourishing of cordones and you had this flourishing of workers seizing their factories and demanding their incorporation to that social property area, there are negotiations that begin to take place on proposed devolution of those factories back to their original private owners away from the state interveners. And that then becomes a huge sticking point. And that is actually the context into which the Workers' Committee of Fukuna Makena will take that document from the MIR, that People's Demands document, and they will rework it into their own document. And what I discovered into, into doing this is that one of the key differences that they did, and this is what really forms the basis of my research, and I think is some of the best evidence we have for understanding what socialism meant to the workers of the Cordones, specifically Fukuna Makena. One of the key additions that they make to this document that comes out is that they, in the section that begins it, which was entitled The Crimes of the Bosses, in which in the Mir's original document, they sort of indicted 
all the different crimes that were being committed by the bosses during the capital strike. The final crime that is articulated by the Cordonis Manifesto that does not appear anywhere in the Mears document is it reads that it is a crime that a minority continues to use the basic riches of Chile while refusing to give a dignified life to all Chileans. And it is this phrase of a dignified life that may seem very innocuous, but is actually incredibly important for understanding the dynamics and the culture of Vakuna Makena itself. Because what this signals is that Vakuna Makena had influences that were heterogeneous and cross-class alliances that existed beyond the traditional sort of ideologies of Marxism-Leninism and included things such as social Christianity, right? Influences of the church and this discourse of dignity. But what it really speaks to is the involvement of the urban poor, which would be referred to in Spanish and Chile as pobladores, and their social movement for a demand to a dignified home. Like this seems to me an amazingly important kind of insight from the experience of the Cordones that like you see this sometimes not in this not in a socialist or a way. So you say for example, like one case near where I come from in rural Ireland, the state electricity company wanted to put a whole series of big pylons, you know, uh, network, and they were trying to mm-hmm. plan where they would put it through. And all of a sudden, you see the entire area, like a geographic area, say, no, we don't want them. We want them put underground. We don't want them, mm-hmm. the pylons in the sky. And you see the rich, the poor, you see this this geographical ability to unite people that aren't politically normally united and you see this phenomena where you have workers that are people that attended i think from in the cordones like not all of them are even leftists no exactly that's the thing is in fact if we actually as we mentioned earlier the 1972 election of the coot that first time that the rank and file are able to elect their members they're also electing delegates to the general assembly and the communists win the majority the socialists come in second place, but percentage-wise, and then the resulting sort of corresponding number of delegates between the socialists in second place and the Christian Democrats in third place is the same, which is to say that in 1972, nearly a quarter of unionized workers in, in Chile identified as Christian Democrats, which is important because this influence of Christian democracy we know is a big influence in, or at least at the level of the local parish of San Cayetano in the Cordones territory of Okunamakena, is a key influence in helping the workers' movement get off the ground in, say, the Sumar textile factory. So we have an oral history from Juan Alacon, who was the president of the Sumar's industrial union, that blue-collar union, in the cotton plant of Sumar. And Sumar is important because it had a cotton plant, polyester, nylon, and silk. So sort of a city unto itself, if you can think of the, the sort of scale and scope of this, of this textile plant or the textile company. And in the late 1960s, when the cotton plant is trying to get its first union founded, they're having a lot of difficulty doing so, right? Because they can't meet at the factory because management will bust that union real quick. And they don't have a local to go to because they don't have a union yet. And so what they do is they reach out to the church. They reach out to the local parish priest and ask for his help. And he agrees to help them insofar as both helping sort of facilitate the meeting and vote that will take place, as well as lending a space for them to hold the meeting and the vote in the local parish church. And so it's like sort of little whispers like that, that I think you can draw a straight line between those 
and the appearance of this dignified life, this phrase of dignity, this invocation of dignity in the manifesto. And so I think that this really gets at the heart of, you know, earlier we talked about perhaps the contradiction of the Allende years as being this contradiction between reform and revolution. For me, or at least where I am now in sort of my research, I think that one of the key contradictions is less reformist versus revolutionary and more a contradiction on the meaning of socialism. So for elites, or rather the popular unity government, right, the the people like Allende, etc., you know, they understood socialism in a very traditional Marxist-Leninist sense of state economic planning, right? Or not even right. necessarily Marxist-Leninist, but at least in the really existing socialist states at the time as a sort of national top-down planning. Or, or even like, even to be p- kind of pejorative, like a laborite kind of a UK yes. labor government, not like when I, when, we, when I look at the actual policies that they were interested in doing, the big nationalizations of the commanding heights, this is, this is what say the you you know the labor government did post war it it mm-hmm. quite similar but it has obviously more revolutionary elements in there with worker control and councils so it's not just laborism but it there is a, a a large portion of it is that kind of approach yeah and i think that your reference to sort of post war labor governments is instructive given that right allende's goal is to recreate this post war moment of popular frontism in some senses, right? Uh, right? So it is, you know, it is a global milieu, sort of a global moment that he is drawing on here. Like, how much would you say it's an infusion of like that with a like a, a 1968 revolutionary foment of of both elements? Yeah, I think that that is a, a great way to think about it, right? It's an attempt to fuse a previous model of national development, national industrialization coming out of the popular front with a recognition that by the late 50s into the 1960s, workers' parties and Marxist parties are gaining strength, both demographically and just in sort of popularity, both worldwide and especially in Chile, as well as in the workers' movement itself is gaining strength, right? And so it's really an attempt to sort of fuse all of these disparate elements into a governing coalition. And you know, for me, instead of thinking this contradiction between form revolution, I think there's a contradiction between this socialism as state planning and say for the workers of Akuna Makena, who would argue that socialism should be understood as workers' ability to control production to provide the necessities of a dignified life. In other words, it is still a redistributive ethic, right, that is constant between state planning and sort of this bottom-up view. The difference being is that the workers believe that they should be the ones consulted and not government bureaucrats who don't exist in the factories themselves, right? And that the end of this redistributive ethic should be towards something called, you know, that we could think of as a dignified life and individual dignity. And so you can already see then how that would create problems for both Marxist theoreticians and, you know, Marxist parties, because dignity is one, not a material concept, right? So it already creates problems for your materialists and your historical materialists of the day. But it also is a concept that is highly individuated, right? It's a very individualized subjectivity. And so there's this tension between collective actions, redistribution, workers' participation, etc., toward a more individualized goal of dignity. And so I think that, you know, all of these reasons both help us better understand the contradictions of the Allende years, but it also perhaps explains why 
you know, previous historians and previous generations of those who have studied this period don't really wade into this into this part of the history because it's a lot messier. It's a lot harder to sort of disentangle this, especially, you know, the Allende years were such a polarizing impact on the literature that for so long, the concerns of those investigating it were to sort of diagnose what went wrong, who was to blame. And the Christian Democrats, you know, often got lumped in as the enemies because they had allied with the opposition to bring down the government. And so it was seen as sort of heretical to perhaps propose that Christian Democrats, at least workers that adhered to a Christian Democrat line, could have very much been in support of socialism. Right. It shows that like they, they have all manner of reasons for people within a class supporting a party that doesn't reflect their class interests. But when the, the battle on the ground is happening and it's real and they feel it, they can act obviously in their class interest, which doesn't align with their, their voting history. Exactly. Exactly. And that's a lot harder. I mean, that's a harder one. That's just harder to research. And two, it's harder to make in the immediate aftermath of what happens to the Allende government, which was so polarizing. If you'd like to help fund the book that Donald and myself are writing about communist economic planning, please head over to the website theclasslesssocietyinmotion.com where you can donate to our fund to help us get this book out in a finite time. Everybody who donates will get a signed copy of the book when it's released. So head on over there today and help us with this really important project. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science, and Swampside Chats. And if you'd like to help out the show, please remember to head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar. On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega.